on episode 278 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn about double strategy for club level players with Will Bocek. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the show. This is Mirban, and I'm really pleased to have you listening to this episode. Today I've got one with Will Bocek, who is the founder of Tennis Tribe, and he is the host of the Doubles Only Tennis Podcast, which is a great show that I listen to, and I've been listening to more recently before my doubles matches, uh, USA League primarily. And today we'll talk about a lot of great strategic advice that you can use and apply when you're on the court, such as which player should play on the ad side, when you have lefty and a righty team, um, should the forehand be on the middle or on the outside, myths about double strategy, doubles tiebreaker tips, and a lot of great tactics, again, that I think you'll really enjoy if you're a doubles player. And even if not, maybe it'll encourage you to play more doubles because using these strategies that Will and I talk about will definitely help you improve your game. So with for, without further ado, here is my interview with Will Bocek. Everybody, welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm really pleased to have on Will Bocek on the podcast. Uh, he has a fantastic podcast that I listen to called the Doubles Only Tennis Podcast. And um, yeah, just really Really pleased to have you on, Will, especially with all the doubles that I've been playing and, you know, USA League's is majority doubles. So mm-hmm. uh, your podcast has been really helpful. Um, yeah. First of all, how, how are things going for you? Uh, everything's good. We're kind of wrapping up the season. Uh, they had So I live in Fort Worth and they had the WTA finals here last week, um, which was just when they announced it, I was in New York at the US Open and I had to like triple check with like a bunch of different people. I was like, no way, this can't be right. It's not going to be in Fort Worth, Texas, but it was. Uh, So spent a lot of time at that, Um, was there every day and uh, now watching the WTA or I'm sorry, the ATP doubles finals uh, this week. Um, And uh, yeah, everything's good. Excited for the off season and uh, to look ahead to 2023 as well. Awesome. Well, yeah, I always um, like brainstorm and write down like a a bunch of questions before uh, my, uh, interviews and one of them was about your experience at the WTA finals um for the doubles uh, obviously in particular mm-hmm. so curious about um you know maybe a couple takeaways that that you found that kind of like mesh with kind of the strategy sort of theme or or it could be mental or otherwise yeah yeah so i actually uh just did an episode on this um during the WTA finals mm-hmm. uh and there was so the tournament was great. Um, and they, it, unfortunately they didn't have a lot of time to prep for it. So the attendance, uh, there's a lot of stuff on Twitter about the attendance being down and stuff like that, but it was, mm. it was a really fun tournament. Um, and it was interesting. There's eight teams 
uh, eight doubles teams, and a lot of them are doubles specialists, right? So you'll have uh, Demi Schurz and Desiree Kravchik who, who don't play singles at all, or um, Juliana almost plays a little singles, and then Gabby Dabrowski plays only doubles at this point. Um, and then you have some other players like like the Czechs, who are the top doubles team in the world, but they also play a lot of singles, right? Barbara Krejcikova and Katerina Siniakova. Um, and then the team that won it, Elise Mertens and Veronica Kudermatova, they play singles as well. So it's interesting when you get these matchups where it's like high-level singles players who are also really good at doubles against doubles specialists. And one of the takeaways that I I kind of had a hunch of over the years, but but this kind of cemented it for me, is that you've got to, you've really got to be able to hang from the baseline nowadays. And this is especially true mm-hmm. in the women's game. Uh, the men's game is a little different because they both get to the net a lot more. There's not quite as much one-up, one-back. There's some, uh, but in the women's game, it's almost exclusively one-up, one-back. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that that we can get into. But um, Kuder Matova off the ground, I think, was the difference for her and Mertens. And she hits the ball so hard, so low, takes it so early that even if you poach and it's a good poach and you're able to hit a volley, it's such a difficult volley that you, you're you almost playing defense. So she just totally neutralizes that net player, whether it's uh, Gabby Dabrowski or, or Demi Schurz or whoever it is. Um, so that was one big takeaway. If you can be really, really good off the ground, um, you can kind of neutralize a lot of the top net players in the world. Um, and it kind of goes against the traditional kind of doubles mantra of get to the net. Uh, you know, volleys are more important than ground strokes and so on. Um, so that was one big takeaway for sure. Um, another one is uh, the the format. I, I really wish they would play ad in this in, in these tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fine with a 10 point tiebreaker for the third set, but those deciding points like you can get lucky or just miss a first serve. And then all of a sudden you have a second serve and I don't know. It just seems too much of a coin flip on those deciding points um, for me. So I, I really wish they would play ad. That's not really a, a strategic thing, but it's a change that I would like to see. Um, but yeah, the big takeaway was it was the the double specialists. At least in this case, they really didn't um, weren't able to hang with the the top singles players. Uh, and when I say that, these aren't just singles players, right? I, I would argue that. Krejcikov is a better doubles player than she is singles player. Um, the same could be true of Mertens. Um, the same is definitely true of Siniakova and so on. So um, to say that these are singles players playing doubles, I think is uh, kind of backwards. Um, a lot of these players are actually better at doubles, but they are also really good at singles. Got it, got it. And so, I mean, with the you mentioned earlier how, especially for the women's game, it's like one up, one back is kind of the, you know, uh, prevailing formation in some senses. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, is that partially because of how, I mean, yeah, what is it? Is it like, just, is it maybe because of the serve situation where maybe serves aren't as dominant on the female versus male side, or is it something else? Yeah, I I think I've got a few ideas on this. I mean, there's, you know, this is, it's interesting. We'll get into like analytics stuff later. Um, but I, I really don't like to, um, I like to call things theories and then like facts. And 
there's a lot of stuff that I can prove with data. And and this is something where I'm getting into like some theories and, and I have some theories on why the women play more one up one back. Um, one of them, which, which I guess this is kind of a fact is typically they're just not as tall, right? So they're easier to lob. Um, so in general, um, since the women are a little shorter, they're easier to lob. So when they do get two up at the net, uh, it, it's just easier to hit a lob. So you're, you're in a very difficult position. Uh, another reason is in general, their overheads aren't quite as strong, right? So you'll see um, mm-hmm. in the overhead and the serve, it's, it's a very similar motion, as you know. So um, you'll see guys hit overheads from near the baseline for, for winners a lot of the time, right? And um, yeah. the women's overheads just aren't as strong and they're a little more solid um, off the baseline. So uh, that's my theory on it. Um, you know, some other coaches might have different theories, but uh, that's kind of what I see. Um, whereas the guys will serve in volley a lot more, um, partly because, yeah, their serves are bigger, but also once they get to the net, it's it's so difficult to lob them. Um, so it's really a kind of low percentage play if you're throwing out that lob in the men's game versus the women um, will lob a lot more often, and it's often a lot more effective. Yeah, there's some really good points. And um, this kind of reminds me of when I interviewed um, Dennis Kudla and Francis Tiafo after a doubles match at City Open. It might have been like 2018 or so, but mm-hmm. they had mentioned, or at least Dennis was the one who talked about this. And he, I asked him about like why they were playing a lot of two back and, and staggered formations and whatnot. And he said that in today's game, coupled with, uh, well, I guess he said racket technology and like mm-hmm. it just, the power of the ground strokes um, make it very viable to uh, not play two up all the time. So mm-hmm. I was wondering, you know, specifically to help the audience who are, you know, like 3-0 to 5-0 players and such, what do you think's like the optimal formation, you know, in, in doubles for club level players? I mean, do mm-hmm. you think it's situational? Um, what are your thoughts overall on doubles formations? Yeah, so my philosophy with like giving advice on um using different formations or a particular strategy is i always start with it depends because in doubles there's so many different situations and this is one of yeah. the things where i i feel like i feel like the the coaching industry has gotten a little maybe intellectually lazy uh where we like have these blanket statements like doubles you have to get to the net or um right. i formation you have to serve down the t like there's no, you have to do this in this situation in doubles. Like it just, it virtually doesn't exist. So it all, um, it all depends. Do you like your forehand better than your backhand? Do you like to be at the net more than the baseline? Is your serve better than your return? Uh, what about for your partner? Are you better at setting up your partner when they're at the net or are they better at the net and you're setting them up from the baseline? So it, it all really depends. Um, there's a few things that I see work well over and over uh, at the club level, and I can go over a few of those. Um, so one, yeah. one is most people like their forehand better than their backhand. Um, so I think for a lot of players, if you're not using different serve formations, then you're you're leaving points on the table. You're leaving wins on the table. Um, it's it's a thing that kind of gets. Um, can kind of get weird for some players. Like I know if you're playing with somebody brand new and you're getting too like nerdy with the strategy, which this is something I run into all the time. Like if I'm playing with a new 
uh, a new men's or mixed partner. And I'm like, okay, let's do signals. Let's do eye formation on this one. Let's, and I'm calling all this stuff and it can kind of overwhelm people. So I get it. But eye formation on the ad side is a really effective or Australian uh, on the ad side is a really effective way to hold at a higher rate on that side. And there's really three main reasons for this. Um, one is if the returner returns it down the line, it's to your forehand. We're assuming everyone's right-handed. Uh, if they return cross-court, assuming your net player stays left, they have a forehand volley in the middle. Um, and then third, it's just a more difficult return. So they're returning over the higher part of the net and the shorter part of the court. Um, so they have to get that ball up higher and they have to get it to dip down lower faster than if they are hitting a cross-court return. So there's a ton of returners from the ad court who love their backhand cross-court, for example. Uh, I'm one of them. Um, but they really have trouble hitting that down-the-line backhand from the ad court. So it can be a really effective strategy um, to play eye formation there. And then in general, returning, you can go two back. Um, if you feel like you're better at setting up your partner. If you're better at the baseline, you can go two back when your partner's returning, have them return and volley. Um, there's all these different matchups you kind of want to think about and come up with ways to create. Uh, and the best team to watch that does this is the the Czechs. Uh, Krejcikova and Siniakova, um, they are at their best when Krejcikova is uh, rallying from the deuce court, from the baseline, and Siniakova is at the net in the ad court. So everything they do is centered around that. So a lot of times Krejcikova will be serving and using that eye formation that I just talked about from the ad court so that she can immediately go to the deuce court and start rallying and Siniakova can be at the net from the ad court. And then they, they can do the opposite with Siniakova. She prefers to rally from the ad court because her backhand's really strong. So they run a lot of eye formation in the deuce court when Siniakova's returning and she'll go left and Krejcikova will go right. So. It's kind of a, you can picture it like a grid almost, like net, baseline, deuce, add, and which of these quadrants do you and your partner need to be in to have the most success against a particular team? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you reminded me of a couple different uh, matches that I had. There was one where uh, my partner and I were both struggling at the net against these two players, and and he actually was the one who prompted me to say, hey, you know, let's, let's go two back here, and then we won like six straight games or something. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Um, and there's there's also so, uh, there's one player in particular uh, who plays USCA leagues here, and he has a very good forehand, but a pretty you know suboptimal backhand. And so, he, as you mentioned, he would always on the ad side do uh, Australian, mm -hmm. and so he just have forehands all the time. Right. So, um, yeah, real real key. There's ways to counter uh, to that. Think about who you're playing. Yeah, th mm -hmm. there's ways to counter that as the returner too. Like I I do that a lot because I don't want to hit backhands from the baseline. And there's a player I play against who I'll, I'll hit that serve and he'll immediately lob my partner. Uh -huh. And so then I'm hitting a backhand ground stroke. So uh, he, he has really good, a really good lob return. But, um, you know, you're, you're constantly kind of playing chess, figuring out, okay, I want to hit forehands. Oh, no, now he's lobbing. So what do we do now? Do I go back to regular and hit runaround uh, forehands from the ad court? Or should we try something else? Um, so it, it just... It's constantly a game of chess, which is uh, what makes doubles so much fun. 
Yeah, definitely. And well, you're like a what a five zero player. Like, is that what you play? Yeah, yeah. So I just got bumped up last cool. year. Actually, um, I was a four five nice. for a while and uh, made it to five zero last year. Nice beating up on people <laughs> four five. <laughs> well, I actually moved. <laughs> um, the ratings. I, I don't know if it's like this where you are, but the the ratings are kind of weird. Like depending on the city you're in. So Austin, Hmm. so I've been in Texas for a while and I was in Austin for five or six years and the four or five level there is, is just a lot higher. So we would all beat up on each other and I was there playing four or five for like four or five years. And then I moved up to Fort Worth and the four or five level isn't quite as strong. So I was playing Hmm. four or five last year and just kind of rolling through these matches just because the players aren't quite as strong. So then I immediately get bumped up, which keeps the four or five level in Fort Worth down, um, which is kind of an interesting cycle to me that I've talked to some USTA people about. But anyways, uh, that's kind of what happened. Got it. Got it. It's very interesting. And so, yeah, that's a great level to talk about because I'm, I'm there as well. So what are a couple of the biggest mistakes that you see doubles players are making, um, you know, in your experience from playing? playing them or watching them yeah um so at the club level uh i i think the big thing is people are just a little too timid at the net um Mm. it's kind of a psychological thing that i've studied for for the better part of the last five years um but people just feel like when they get beat down the line they let their partner down they let the team down and they feel like it was worth five points. Um, and it's just not true. And it's not how you win doubles. You don't win doubles by covering the doubles alley or covering the line. Um, you you want to, Craig O'Shaughnessy, uh, who I've had on my podcast before. And if you haven't, uh, he's a great guest. Um, yeah, he, he has this area on the doubles court. He calls it the center window, which is just above the middle net strap area. And it's like a maybe an eight foot or so window above the middle net strap. And he says that that's the area you want to control. And, and it's definitely true. Um, and I feel like a lot of club level players, uh, whether it's in serving formation or during the rally or whatever it is, they, they're standing closer to that singles line than they are to that center uh, serve line. Um, and they're just making it so easy on the returner or on the, the opposite player rallying from the baseline to just hit wide open to the cross court. Uh, so what I, what I usually tell people to do is try to keep a mental note of how many times the opponent goes down the line uh, and, and count how many times they miss, uh, how many times if you do poach or you do kind of pinch towards the middle and stay aggressive, how many times do you get a volley? And then how many times do they actually beat you? And what's going to happen is the number of times that they actually beat you is going to be less than probably 40%, which means you're winning six out of 10 points, which you'll take all day. Um, so the, again, I, I think a lot of it's kind of a psychological thing, but really so, some advice I like to give people to, to try to flip this on its head is like, if you're not getting beaten down the line at least two or three times per match, then you're not moving enough at the net. Like you should be getting beat down the line. and I kind of flipped that in my own game so that, you know, early in the match, if someone beats me down the line, I'm kind of happy about it because I know that they think that's a shot that they can rely on. And I know for sure that that in most cases it's not. 
Um, now, if they do beat me three, four times in a row down the line and they like that particular shot, then we can make some adjustments. But uh, in general, it's going to be a low percentage play. So you have to kind of calculate that in your head throughout the match. Yeah, I really like that advice, Will. I definitely, um, more lately, I've been keeping stock as well of like, you know, how often does this returner go down the line? Have I been beat much? And then, you mm -hmm. know, it's very obvious that like, okay, if that's not happening much, like I can definitely, you know, yeah. go for more uh, crosses and just be more aggressive in the middle of the court. So mm -hmm. I really do like that one. I am curious too, Will, um, just to take a, take a little step back, like, um, how did you get interested particularly in doubles, um, you know, venturing into the podcast and such? Yeah. Um, so I played college tennis at a small division three school. Uh, after college, I didn't play any tennis at all for a while. Um, actually lived out in Jackson, Wyoming, uh, skiing and hiking and doing all that stuff uh, for a while. And then I moved to Austin in 2015, I believe, and started playing USTA leagues and tournaments and things like that. And, and I was just curious on the doubles court. I was like constantly observing other people playing matches, observing my opponents while I was playing and just experimenting, trying different things. And I, that's when I first noticed like, um, I, I didn't learn it from a coach or anything like that. I was kind of self-taught, but I know a lot of coaches um, teach similar, similarly where you, know, you don't cover the alley and things like that. But I started just staying super aggressive at the net and I would just drive these people crazy. Um, I, I used to be a little more mobile than I am now, um, but uh, yeah, I would just chase the tennis ball like a dog almost, just back and forth across the net. And I was able to force all these errors and my volleys weren't particularly strong, but just by them seeing me move, I would, I would force errors. So, um, yeah. I started, uh, tennis tribe in 2016 and just started writing blog posts and the USTA community around Texas. Um, I added some of them to an email list, uh, just some friends and opponents who I'd played against and stuff. And, um, they just gave me really good feedback. Uh, they were like, Oh, we love your blog. We love your advice. So I guess I was able to like kind of distill the advice and the double strategy in a way that they were able to understand and implement onto the court. Uh, and then from there it turned into a newsletter, which I'm still sending out every Thursday. Uh, and then a couple years ago I decided, okay, I need to start a podcast because everybody's doing a tennis podcast. Um, and there wasn't one specifically on doubles. Uh, so yeah, so I started that a couple of years ago. Uh, have been doing a lot of interviews with coaches, with uh, ATP and WTA players. Um, and then uh, met some coaches through that and have started doing uh, a lot of analytics work as well. So back in 2018, I met Craig O'Shaughnessy, who lives in Austin, um, and started helping him launch some of his courses and things like that. And then yeah. uh, I saw what he was doing for singles. And I'll never forget, I, I was sitting at a coffee shop with him one day. And I was, he was working with Djokovic at the time. And I was watching Djokovic play. It was either round of 16 or quarterfinals at the US Open. And uh, I think it was McEnroe calling the match. And he said, um, with Djokovic's uh, serve, mile per hour, he's not going to be able to win this tournament. It's too low. And they showed this graphic and it was like back in, uh, I don't know, four or five years earlier when he had won the U S open, his 
average serve speed was like 116 and now it's down to like 108 or something. And the next day I had a meeting with Craig, who was the strategy coach for Djokovic at the time. And I asked Craig, what's going on with his like serve percentage? And he pulls up Dartfish, which is the software he uses. Um, and he shows me all these serves where Novak's serving out wide. And he says, I've measured this. I don't want him serving. Uh, I think it was second serves. I don't want him serving over like 105 on these second serves. It's more important for me that he serves out wide in the deuce court and that it goes lands short and wide than it has pace because then he's more likely to get that serve plus one forehand. And I kept working with Craig and that's when it all kind of clicked for me. I was like, oh, we can measure all of this stuff and we can do this for doubles too. And since then, I've uh, started working with a few pro doubles teams and players um, and coaches as well and doing kind of helping move analytics forward a little bit on the doubles scene. Um, so it's been a lot of fun, a long journey, and who knows uh, where it's going to go next. So, Yeah, that's amazing, Will. Um, kudos. That, that's super cool. Yeah, I had the privilege of uh, having dinner with uh, Craig and, and Will and a couple other people. Um, Adam, who's a partner with Will from Fuzzy Yellow Balls, mm -hmm. um, like, I think like one or two months ago, and a lot of great insights from, from Craig, and I've had him on my uh, summit a couple times as well. So go. super super cool that you're working with them. Um, yeah, a lot of follow-up questions here, I guess. Well, one thing is like with, with the stats analysis that, that you've been doing, um, any like surprising, I mean, you just talked about one with the, the slicer about wide um, mm -hmm. and the speed, um, of that, but like any other like findings that you found that were surprising or eye opening as well? Yeah. Um, so for doubles specifically, one thing I've noticed analyzing a lot of these pro teams is out of the I formation, they serve down the T. A lot of them will serve down the T like 85, 90% of the time. Um, and they'll have a pretty decent win percentage with it. Uh, but then I'll look at the, the 10 or 15% of the time they'll serve wide and they'll win almost every single point. Um, mm. So the win percentage down the T will be maybe 70%, something like that. And then out wide, it'll be like 96%. So why do you think so? Um, <laughs> well, part of it's the element of surprise, right? Like if, if they know you're yeah, going yeah. down the T, uh, then they're going to be sitting on that T serve. So like if we take the ad court, for example, if you're, you're serving down the T to me every time, I'm going to start leaning to my right. And then if all of a sudden you serve wide, I'm not going to see it coming. That's definitely part of it. Um, and that's one of the arguments I get for when I tell people serve wide more often because it's working better than your T-serve. They'll say, oh, well, it's only working because the the element of surprise. And I'll tell them, yes, but do it a little more often. That win percentage will come down from 96 to, let's say, 85 maybe. And then that T-serve win percentage will go up from 70 to 77. And then your overall win percentage in the ad court will increase too. So, you know, an ideal scenario would be you have a perfect distribution where like every single location you hit your serve has the same win percentage, right? So you constantly want to be kind of tweaking those levers um, to, to maximize your efficiency on your serve. Uh, but that was, a, that was a big one for sure. Um, not as many players serve wide as 
you'd expect, and it works a lot better than than they or even I expected. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, I I usually hear the um, advice that like you want to serve um, down the tee to like cut off like the ability for the players to hit like wider angles. I mean, mm-hmm. is that something that you kind of subscribe to as well, or have any different thoughts about? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. Like that's one of those theories that you know when I look at the data, especially on serving, like it it just doesn't add up for me um I, I think in general during the point like during a rally yes it's it's typically best to play through the middle if you're um kind of neutral or on offense defense is a whole separate thing where you need to be you know playing more uh maybe lobs or, or so, some kind of high ball to buy yourself time but um in general during the point yes it, it's best to to kind of play through the middle if you can kind of own that area uh but serving, it just, the numbers don't add up. Uh, a lot of players have more success serving wide. Um, and it could be just because they like their wide serve better um, and they hit it better. It could be um, taking away the angles gives uh, a particular player a smaller target down the line or cross court. So they actually like that. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I don't. That sounds like one of those theories that's kind of hard to prove, so I'm not going to uh, subscribe to it unless I see um, a little more proof. Yeah, and no, I hear you on that. And it's obviously, again, very player-dependent um, mm-hmm. on you know their weaknesses, like what's their worst return, things like that. Like if, sure. if they're stretched out wide, maybe they have like a, a Western grip, like that's probably going to be a really hard return on the deuce side, all these things. Right. Um, you know, yeah, and one thing, Will, that you mentioned actually um, a little while ago, was um you said you were studying like the psychological fear of players in doubles for for like five years or so i think it was um i was wondering if maybe you had any other insights like in in studying that um you know about why why is this the case that doubles players are just like scared of of you know making aggressive moves and and things like that yeah i i think a lot of it, you know, I, I've read a lot of books on um, like psychology and uh, I actually helped shoot uh, a course with Craig O'Shaughnessy and uh, Jeff Greenwald. I, I think you had him yeah. on uh, your summit as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and Jeff's, Jeff's good at this stuff, the, the psychology stuff and, and the mental good. game. Um, and yeah, I, I think it just... I think we've got ingrained in us from the time that we start playing tennis, like doubles is you cover your half and I cover my half. And if I get beat down the line, I didn't do my job. Um, But if I cover my alley, never get beat down the line, the opponent has a just rhythm rallying cross court and we it's death by a thousand cuts. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Right. Um, So. I don't know. I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with that. Just the idea that um, a lot of players think that doubles is covering your half of the court while your partner covers the other, but really um, it, you got to get out of that mindset and, and work with your partner on, Hey, this is a team thing. Um, know that I'm going to be, I like to be super aggressive at the net. Um, and I always tell my partner that at the beginning of a match, if I hadn't played with them before um, and I'll tell them I'm going to get beat down the line some, but they're also going to miss a lot. Um, and it's going to, help us hold serve easier. Um, so I don't know, I'm, I'm not a psychology expert, but I, I think a lot of it has to do with that. Just the, 
how people were taught when they first started. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, the player just, they can say, oh, I did what I had to do on my side and, you know, maybe mm-hmm. not not have much blame for losing in, in their mind. Um, but yeah, one other thing too, um, in terms of, this may be a tough question, I guess, but I'm curious, like, what do you think is the most important shot in doubles? I'm trying to remember. I feel like on Twitter, we might have like talked about this. Like I said, the serve and you, you might have forgot what you said as well. But mm-hmm. like, what, what do you think is the biggest or most important shot that that, you know, if there was one shot in doubles um, that a player had to train and, and maximize, yeah. like what, what shot do you think that would be? Yeah, um, I I think it's the return. Uh, mm. So. I've talked, uh, I work with Warren Pretorius as well over at Tennis Analytics and he, mm-hmm. um, I've talked with him about this and, and everybody says this serves the most important shot in tennis and, and they're talking about singles uh, specifically, but he said, well, look at, look at the top players in the world. Djokovic is the best returner. Nadal's the best returner. Like it's not the best servers that are number one in the world. It's, it's the best returners. Um, so I, I think that kind of goes over to doubles as well. Um, you know, you can get away with a, a worse serve in doubles and you'll see that a lot. A lot of um, players, you know, obviously most of the pro players try to make it in singles at first. And if they aren't quite good enough, and a lot of times it's because their serve isn't necessarily big enough. In doubles, you're only serving every four games in a, instead of every two. Um, returning, uh, obviously that's cut in half as well. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like putting pressure on an opponent's serve is, uh, I don't know, just such an important asset in doubles. Um, when I was in college, I was a good returner, and my volleys were not that great. My serve was not that great, but my coach always put me at line one uh, doubles because uh, he knew I would be in every return game. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't have data to back that up, which, again, it's like hard for me to... Um, I don't know, say something like that without the proof. But uh, yeah, I would say it's the return. But I see an argument for the serve or the return. It's definitely those two shots. Um, I guess one, one, other, yeah. one other comment on that is the, the, another reason I say the return is because it's the least practiced uh, shot. So a lot of players practice their serve sometimes, but players rarely pl- practice their return. So even if it's not the most important, if you tell yourself it's the most important and go practice it more, it might be a bigger benefit to you, if that makes sense. Yeah, I really like that last point. I think that's, um, I guess in a lot of ways, it's also probably like the toughest one to practice. And yeah, at least likely, I mean, you can at least grab a bucket of balls and go serve, but yeah, <laughs> can't really do that with a, you know, by yourself. Um, yeah, and I, I can certainly see that side of it. And um, yeah, I think that, serve and return obviously two of the two of the biggest ones um yeah so when i was in um i I, I subscribed when i was in so i went to the canadian open this year and i was in montreal and it was the first day and i think it was raining but there were some guys practicing they it was it was like dry enough to practice but not dry enough to play matches i guess because there was like this constant mist coming down so I go over to the doubles courts and I watched uh, Kuhlhoff and Skubsky, who are, um, I think, just got mm-hmm. to number one in the world now. Uh, I watched uh, Mies and Kravitz, yeah. who um, are top 10, I think, in the, the year-end race. And 
I watched them each practice for about an hour. And they spent probably 60 to 70% of their time just serving and returning. Like very little time at the bit, <laughs> almost zero time hitting ground strokes, uh, maybe 20% of the time hitting volleys and like 60 to 70% serving and returning. Like it was, it was crazy to me. Like I knew it was, I knew it was high, but it was even higher than I thought. Um, and if, they must have taken Craig O'Shaughnessy's course. It, it's crazy. And <laughs> or listen to him. <laughs> if you go over to like your local club and watch people practice for doubles and like even I'm guilty of this a lot of times, like people are just going to hit from the baseline most of the time, not take that many volleys. And if they do, they're going to volley back to the opponent, which is something that's going to kill them in matches because then they poach and they volley <laughs> it right back to the opponent um, and rarely practice serves and returns. So. It, it's something I've started doing more and more is um, practicing serves and returns in my own practices. Uh, and I really think you probably can't do it enough. Um, there's, yeah, it, it's just definitely the two most important shots uh, in tennis, regardless of singles or doubles. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with, with Craig's, you know, research and, you know, I'm sure you've contributed to it as well. Um, you know, the first four shots are return and then um, serve plus one, return plus one, or comprise i forget it's like 70 or 80 percent of like yeah all the points yeah yeah it's it's <laughs> so like 70 percent in singles and like 70 i don't know 77 percent maybe in doubles or something it's 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 really mm -hmm. high um yeah, yeah. It, it's super important and people uh you know i i guess it depends on your goals too right i know a lot of players who are just like oh i just want to work out so it's like okay fine go hit from the baseline all day but like if you want to win then start practicing those shots more often. Yeah, 100%. Um, on the return route, are there any um, particular serve return tips that you have for us? Because, I mean, obviously that's uh, <laughs> super important and a lot of players struggle with that. So uh, struggle getting a rhythm and, you know, a lot of times, like especially with the, playing like aggressive players mm -hmm. and like maybe four or five plus levels, like, you know, you've got a net person who's like, like yourself, like very aggressive mm -hmm. and... So yeah, any tips uh, on the return? Yeah. Um, so for for practicing, uh, first of all, practice it more often than you do now. Um, second, uh, I think it it's good to set up targets. I've started using them a lot more in in my uh, my own practices. Um, and what I'll do is have uh, sometimes we'll play the points out. Sometimes we won't. Uh, but I'll have a partner serve to me. It'll we'll be working very specifically on either first serves or second serves, uh, and I do vary the locations. Um, one thing I learned from Warren is that, uh, um, that one of his courses that that he uh, it's a coaching certification course. Um, motor skills tend to stick better if you. Uh, if you don't practice specifically, but if you practice more generally. So what I mean by that is like, let's say you're practicing your wide serve in the deuce court. The best way to practice that is not hit a hundred wide serves in the deuce court, but hit a wide serve, then hit a T serve, then hit a kick serve down the T, then go back to the wide serve. Um, and apparently there, there's some research on it uh, that that helps it kind of ingrain uh, a little bit more. So. Anyways, um, back to the returns. So 
so yeah, so I like to set up targets and, and it, it depends on your opponents. If your opponents are serving and staying back, it's best to typically return with depth. If you're playing at a higher level and a lot of players are serving and volleying, um, then you can aim around that uh, service line area and try to keep the ball low, uh, get it down to their feet. I like to hit it low at their backhand volley. So if you're on the ad court, if you can aim where like the, the corner of the service box, so the singles line and the service line. Uh, in the deuce court, um, ideally, if you can get that return low through the middle, but you do have that opposing net player, and if they're super aggressive, then you have to make adjustments, um, things like that. And then also uh, practicing your lob return is really effective as well, because if you are playing somebody like myself, a simple down-the-line lob return will totally neutralize me at the net, um, especially if I'm uh, on the deuce side. Uh, I had Will Hamilton on my podcast, and he calls this the, the parachute return from the deuce court. So mm -hmm. um, you're lobbing it down the line over a right-handed player's backhand volley. Um, and almost none of us have a backhand overhead, like kind of stretching like this. Um, so, so practicing that lob return can be uh, really helpful as well. Uh, but I would say the biggest thing in matches for returns is just staying observant uh, of the players on the other side of the net. And this is um, something else I, I learned from Craig. He always says on the singles court, the most important person on the court is not you, it's the person on the other side of the net. Um, and the same thing's true in doubles. You've got to be studying your opponents. So if they are super aggressive, if they're standing super close to the net, you need to pick up on that quickly and start lobbing. If they're um, standing a little further back from the net, then maybe you can hit a slower return that'll dip down at their feet. Um, if they're serving and volleying, you want to keep the return low at their feet. If they're serving and staying back, go for depth. Um, kind of studying all that stuff can help you develop your return strategy. Yeah, good stuff, Will. What are your thoughts on, um, you know, sometimes you'll have like a stronger you know, a weaker player. I mean, very often actually uh, as a pair. Yeah. So uh, I hear a lot that um, the prevailing advice is that the stronger player should play on the ad side, but curious to hear your thoughts on the matter. Um, yeah, I, I think that's one of those uh, theories that's just never been proven that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, there's a few reasons. So one, uh, if you're playing with add, the deuce court is going to get more returns. So you probably want your player in the deuce court to, uh, you probably want your stronger player to have more returns than your weaker, weaker player, right? So um, there is that. Uh, but playing in the add court, that's typically where I return from. If I'm playing from with someone weaker, I can cover more court from the add court because I have my forehand in the middle. Um, so it kind of depends on, you know, how comfortable are you hitting backhands from the deuce court? Um, but then you also want to look at the weaker player just cause they're the weaker player doesn't mean everything's weak. So figure out what, right. where are they comfortable? Um, if they're comfortable with their forehand, then maybe they do play the deuce, you play the ad and you cover everything in the middle. Um, if they're more comfortable with their backhand and you're okay with your backhand, um, then maybe you do the opposite. Uh, it, it just kind of depends. Um, but in general, if you are playing with a, a weaker player, um, and I've got a YouTube video on this actually, but 
you typically have to take a lot more risk. Um, and this is especially true if they're the yes. weakest player on the court. Uh, if they're just the weakest player on your side of the net, then that's okay. But if they're the weakest player on the court, as the stronger player, you just have to take more risk, which for me, I think the smartest place to take more risk is just movement at the net. Um, just be really unpredictable, yeah. force them to change direction, and you'll get beat a lot, but hopefully they miss more than they make, and uh, you can force a lot of errors that way. Yeah, definitely. I've uh, played some 8-5 with a buddy of mine, and uh, so 5-0, and he's a 3-5, and he mm-hmm. was the weakest one on the court because we had you know usually like 4-5 and 4-0 opponents. And um, yeah, I just had to, you know, poach like crazy. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting. You know, there's a couple times, a couple of matches where even the, even though I was like poaching a ton, like the returner barely ever hit down the line. So it was fantastic. But, interesting. Um, you know, <laughs> some players, they just don't pick up on these things. It's kind of strange, but, yeah. um, you know, kind of, kind of a similar question, I guess, in some respects is like, let's say you have a righty and a lefty, uh, team mm-hmm. and both of them have really strong forehands, um, mm-hmm. to give more. Uh, factual context would you prefer that they play both forehands in the middle or both forehands outside so i went to uh world team tennis last year it was at indian wells and i was chatting with phil farmer who he used to work with the brian brothers he's with um austin krychek and Ivan dodig right now at uh the nice. atp finals and I asked him this because at the time Krychek was playing with Steve Johnson and they played with backhands in the middle, which I found a little strange. Mm-hmm. So Mekdic and Pavic play forehands in the middle. Zabios and Granolers play forehands in the middle. Uh, most teams mm-hmm. tend to. Um, and he said the, the reason they did that is because they're prioritizing their return preferences over uh, the point play preferences because the returns a more important mm. shot. So like if they were just playing off the ground with no serves and returns, sure. They would do forehands in the middle, but Steve much prefers to return from the deuce court and Austin prefers to return from the ad court, even though they have backhands in the middle. So they're a little more exposed in that case once the point gets started, but they're going to have better returns. Um, so I think it depends in general. I like forehands in the middle because you do want to typically control the middle of the court. Um, but like I learned from Phil, I, I do, I agree with him. I, I think prioritizing returns is, uh, is definitely the way to go. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very interesting. Um, what do you think the biggest myth is about double strategy that most club level players have in their mind? Hmm. Um, cover the alley we went over <laughs> that's definitely a big one uh, a lot of I mean a lot of coaches teach you to get to the net um, at all costs which is also like not always true um, right yeah I don't know like the biggest myth I mean I guess it would be cover the alley um, what are some other ones you've heard other ones I've heard um yeah, I mean, I was, I would, I would have to go with the same thing, like where yeah. you must go to the net. Like I've had like a coach, like one time I like live streamed like a doubles practice, and he was like, "Come on, mm-hmm. man, get to the net." But I mean, it wasn't like the best strategy for the particular opponents we had. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, co- covering yeah. your half of the court is another one that like pe- the way people divide up the court is just incorrect. Like covering the deuce versus add. Um, 
So I don't know. I, I would say those are the big ones. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, I, I think covering the alley is probably the biggest one and people should uh, get passed down the line more often, not less often. Uh, and that, that's, yeah. that's the right way to play doubles because when you watch the pros, they get passed all the time down the line and they look at their partner and they say, okay, let's move on. Like, no problem. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, I know we talked about playing with a weaker partner, and and but but do you have any other tips about that? Because this again happens mm-hmm. frequently, like when we have uh you know I guess like the 0.5 leagues, if you will, where you've got to combine with a with a partner. Yeah. Um, so any other strategies there? Yeah. So for a long time, I played Ado uh, until this year when I got bumped up. Um, so now it's a little more level. When I was a four five, I was a, a good four five, and now I'm like a probably subpar five zero. Um, so there was a lot. It, a lot of it depended on the opponent, my partner. Um, again, this is that it depends thing. Uh, but I'll walk you through a few things that worked for me and that I, I've taught some people. Um, so the first place I always start is staying super aggressive at the net. Uh, partly because that's just more comfortable for me. I like to do that anyways. And hopefully I can get some volleys and force some down the line return errors or even force them to try to go harder cross court uh, and force an error that way. Um, In some situations that works, especially against, I feel like against younger players, it has worked for me in the past because they just refuse to hit a lob return. Um, they just want to rip the ball every time. So in that case, it's pretty easy. Uh, but I do play some teams where they figure it out and they start lobbing me. And then I'm kind of neutralized um, because they are hitting lobs to, at the time, my 3-5 partner in the back, who's um, you know a good player for 3-5. But if we're up against two like good 4-0s, for example, it's just not sustainable. So in that case, uh, Sometimes what I would do is actually play back and have uh, her at the net and I would have her stand super close to the net. So if they hit it at her, even if it hits her frame, it goes over the net. Um, it doesn't matter. And a lot yeah. of times it's a winner. So, so they'll hit it at her once or twice. She, you know, she had decent hands. So, so she'll sometimes hit a volley winner or sometimes miss hit it and it'll still be a volley winner and they'll stop going at her. So then they're rallying with me, which is what I want. Um, so I'm able to, at that point, kind of control the point with my forehand from the baseline. And then, you know, if I can get to the net, do that. Um, but uh, putting them right on top of the net was an effective strategy in that case. Uh, and then, like I said, the last thing is, is just knowing your partner's strengths, even though they're the weakest player. Um, figure out what they're good at. Ask them that before the match um, and figure out how you can get them in the position to where um they're not quite as weak they they can't you know be exposed for their the weakest parts of their game 
Yeah, definitely. I talk a lot about um, knowing your strengths and weaknesses and uh, definitely applies to doubles as well with your partner. Um, one thing that um, we always come across like so frequently are the doubles, third set, uh, super breaker. I'm sure you played a lot of those mm-hmm. in the uh, USTA. So, uh, and even tiebreakers themselves. So obviously you know, a lot of players, like when they lose one, they say, ah, oh, like this, you know, they're always a toss up, things like yeah. that. But do you have any tips for, you know, p- playing uh, tiebreakers and super tiebreakers as, as well as possible? Uh, any tips there? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like, uh, like Jeff Greenwald probably has some good stuff on this, uh, dealing with nerves. Yeah. Um, it's not something I specialize in, but I've, I've studied it a lot. Um, and yeah, obviously figure that out, um, figure out how to deal with, deal with your nerves, figure out what works for you. Um, as far as strategy goes, I think that, um, I'm always thinking about risk on the court. So if it's early in the 10 point tiebreaker. Uh, I might serve, you know, I might play I formation and serve down the T to the forehand uh, on the ad side and know that if they connect on this forehand return down the line, I'm probably going to lose the point. Uh, but I'm also likely to get an error on this shot. Um, but if I'm down nine, eight in the tiebreaker and I do that, it's probably not worth the risk because the you know 30 or 40% chance that they connect means the match is over, right? So I'm more likely to take on a, a little bit more risk early on in the tiebreaker, whereas later in the tiebreaker, uh, I, I'll typically want to stick with kind of something that I know is effective against this team, but that doesn't take on too much risk early on in the point so that I can kind of stay in the point. Um, and then, uh, like I talked about earlier, just figure out your best positions to be in on the doubles court, um, whether it's your partner back in the deuce court and you at the net and the ad or whatever it may be kind of within those quadrants. And just use your serve formations and, and get into those positions. Get into the positions that you're comfortable with. Um, and then also, if you can, at the same time, study the opponents and figure out where they're uncomfortable and figure out how you can get them uh, into those less comfortable positions. Um, in general, that means hitting yeah. backhands, hitting backhand volleys, uh, things like that. Got it. Got it. Uh, yeah. Cause I was going to ask you about um, like how to scout your opponents. So I guess mm-hmm. part of that you just mentioned, just giving them like a variety of shots and things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you have a chance to like watch your opponents play, uh, before you actually play against them. Um, maybe your round ended early or whatever. Uh, I, I'm typically studying returns the most because uh, I want to develop a good serve strategy and figuring out kind of what type of returns um, are they comfortable with. Uh, and I divide returns up into uh, four different kind of categories. So you have your uh across your body forehand return across your body backhand return and then kind of inside out or down the line depending on the side you're playing at forehand and backhand so what that means is um an ad court player like myself i like my backhand return across my body i don't like it down the line from the ad court which is kind of i don't know if that would be called inside out i don't think it is but it's it's kind of down the line um 
And then my forehand, I like to hit my forehand inside out. Uh, my forehand inside in actually isn't as strong. Um, and that's true of a lot of ad core players. Uh, it's true for Jack Sock. So um, if, if you're, you know, if you're playing Jack Sock, you do not want to see him set up for a forehand in the doubles alley because he's so wide from there. He can, he can rip it cross court and dip it down low uh, to the opposite cross court players backhand volley. He can rip it through the middle. He can also rip it inside in down the line. But if he has that forehand from closer to the center of the court, uh, he, you've kind of taken away a lot of his angles and it's not as big of a weapon. Um, so studying where they like to hit their forehand and where they like to hit their backhand return uh, is an easy way to develop a good serve strategy. And then from there, you can use formations or you can call poaches um, and figure out where it's crossing the net and then just put your net player there. I like that. Well, that's good stuff. Um, one thing actually to go back to the stronger and weaker player combo is kind of the opposite question, which is um, when you're playing that, that, you know, and maybe to counter like what you were saying as well, where they place the, you know, the weaker player, like near the double silent and all that, mm -hmm. like what's the strategy to, to, I guess, maybe be able to exploit the weaker player? Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on their specific weaknesses and then how, how strong is that other stronger player? Um, so I, I've come up against teams where like, uh, the guy is just so good. Like we cannot give him a single ball. Um, yeah. Like there, there's this league here in Dallas where there's like former D one players and it's like, I can hit with him for like one or two balls every now and then, but like, it's, it's just no chance. <laughs> wow. So, um, Damn. so yeah, so it, it depends on like how big that gap is. Uh, but you know, it's no different than finding anyone else's strengths and weaknesses. Right. Um, typically again, the, the backhand volley is usually going to be a little weaker. Um, in some cases it's not true, but, uh, in most cases it is how close are they standing to the net? So a lot of weaker players, um, especially, you know, at the, the three, five level and below, they don't feel comfortable standing too close to the net. So it's very easy to make them hit a volley from their shoelaces or from their ankles. Um, so you can attack the weaker player that way. Um, just going kind of low at their, uh, at their feet. Um, if the, the stronger players at the net, obviously you can lob them. Uh, you can go down the line on them um, and be sure. Uh, sorry, that's my dogs there. Uh, no, be sure. Um, this is something we hadn't touched on, but when you do go down the line, uh, you don't need to be going for the, the all out winner. Um, yeah. Going actually, I typically recommend, depending on the situation, people aim for the singles line instead of the doubles alley, just to give you a little more margin. Um, especially if they have a backhand volley in the, the doubles alley down the line, because uh, they're not, most players are not going to be able to do a whole lot with that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think the biggest thing is it just depends on the gap. Um, if the stronger player is going to hurt you really badly, then you've just got to take everything at the weaker player. Um, but testing out their volleys, testing out their ground strokes, figuring out what the weakest part of their game is, is, is definitely uh, the way to go early in the match. Definitely will. Um, you mentioned um, earlier watching some doubles uh, teams. I, I think was it warm up, but I was curious. Um, 
you know, for uh, club level players, maybe it sh- maybe it shouldn't be any different to pros. Like, what's the ideal like warm up? I don't know if it's maybe you have a routine that you go through or one that you recommend for uh, for players. You know, say they have a match or whatever, but they have like mm-hmm. half an hour of a uh, court time. You know, beforehand. So, what do you think they should be doing? Yeah, um, I I think for me, like as I'm getting older, I, I think the biggest thing for me is just making sure my body gets warm. Um, you know, at that point, I'm not going to fix my serve technique or anything like that. Um, so for me, I go through just a typical warm up. Um, but I do, I probably do hit more serves and returns than, than most other, uh, players. And I, I think you probably should do that. Um, that that's what I'd recommend, uh, before you even, you know, get on the tennis court. I'm sure you've had some people on the podcast about like dynamic warm ups and stuff like that. Um, so I would yeah. definitely recommend that stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I like um, starting short, rallying from the baseline, then go one up, one back, alternate that. Um, a lot of players like to do that cross court, which I think is great because um, it simulates the real match situation a little bit more um, since most teams are playing in that kind of regular formation. Uh, and then also if you can both get to the net and hit some touch volleys up there and really work on your footwork, I think that's a great, um, a great way to warm up your volleys and feel a little more connected with the ball. Um, and then spend a lot of times on serves and returns. Um, you can play points out cross court and just like take that center service line and imagine it goes through the middle of the court and that can be your kind of in and out line. Um, and you can do that on the deuce court, do that on the ad court. Um, and just get plenty of, uh, serves and returns there. Um, but yeah, like I said, for me, the biggest thing is just making sure my, my legs and feet and, and kind of shoulder and things like that are warm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. That's a great tips there. Um, what do you think, uh, high percentage doubles looks like if someone were to go to you and say, Hey, I just want to play like solid high percentage doubles. Uh, what would you tell them to do? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's usually how I start out every match just to like test people out. Cause if I can win playing high percentage, then I'll just keep doing that. Um, so yeah. pretty much everything, uh, goes cross court in high percentage doubles. Um, one of the, this is something, a drill I've actually been working on that your listeners might like a lot. Uh, so I saw this back at Indian Wells a year ago. So it was October, 2021, because they delayed Indian Wells, you know, six months in 2021. And I saw um, Shea Sue and Elise Mertens doing this drill where they had the, uh, the coach was sitting on the uh, baseline about where you would be for a return. And Shea was acting like she's the server's partner. And the coach was just ripping balls at Shea and she had to practice putting them away. Uh, and then I saw Wesley Kuhlhoff doing this in Montreal as well. And one thing I noticed is almost all of their volleys were going across their body. Um, and Kuhlhoff actually had some like sticks out that were like short kind of angles, like well in front of the service line through the doubles alley so that he had to angle all the volleys off the court. So the coach is just ripping balls at Kuhlhoff or at Shea um, and they're just going like this, just fending them off back and forth, back and forth, um, from pretty close to the net. So you're emulating the, uh, like a real aggressive return. 
and you're practicing uh, that serve plus one volley. And so many players at the club level, myself included, uh, hit that volley right back at the returner. Because typically when we're practicing our volleys, we're practicing with a can of balls or maybe we have six balls and we just don't have enough to keep hitting winners. So you need a basket for this. And I've started doing it recently and it's helped so much. Um, it, wow. it just, it becomes ingrained into your muscle memory. Uh, so that way you're much better at putting away volleys instead of hitting them right back to the returner. Um, so, uh, so that's definitely a drill that, uh, that I'd recommend, um, people, uh, try out. And now I've forgotten your initial question. <laughs> Uh no no that that's that's perfect. Did I cover um, it? Yeah, we just <laughs> yeah yeah you 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 covered it. So, okay, uh, all good there. Um, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, because I mean, high percentage. I mean, that kind of figures into it with it. Yeah so, yeah. So, um, so I was saying a lot of the a lot of people when they poach like they try to hit this inside out volley at the opposing net player when they should just hit a short cross court angle and they'll make a lot more of them. That's where I was going with that. Yeah. Um. So high yeah, yeah, high percentage, no. you're playing with your strengths. I always run eye formation on the ad side so that I have a forehand because it's high percentage for me. Things like that. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So with the eye formation on the ad side, then you're you're pretty much always having your partner go left. Then, uh, typically I'll do it. It depends on the opponent. Um, but I'll do that maybe seventy to eighty percent of the time. Um. Yeah, and then switch it up a little. Yeah, every now and then I'll I'll test out their forehand and backhand return. Figure out, you know, where is it crossing the net? Which one has more height? Mm. Which how much pace does it have? And then we can get a read on. Okay, they're hitting their backhand return, kind of back towards the middle of the court. It's coming pretty high over the net. So on this one, I'm going to go wide. You hold for a second and and watch until like wait until they start their swing. And then as soon as they start their swing, then you move right. Because if you go a little early, um, then it can be, you know, they can see it and then they can rip that cross court, which a lot of ad players like. Um, And I also love the fake out of the eye formation. Um, If you're quick quick enough to do it, uh, it's something I've used a lot recently is faking to the right to make them go cross court and then go back to your left, um, at least on the ad side. It, It works on both sides. Uh, and then a lot of times you end up with a, a pretty easy volley um, off that cross court return. Yeah, love that last one, especially a uh, really good play there. Um, what are three books that you'd gift a friend to help them improve their doubles game? So perhaps some really good doubles books that you've read. And then, you know, if in case you don't have three doubles books that you really like, you know, it can be like a resource online or something else. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, th- I think the inner game of tennis is just kind of a must read for any tennis player. Um, I think it helps yeah. whether you're singles or doubles. Uh, so that that's definitely one. Um, the uh, Ian's new book, Essential Tennis, I'm not all the way through it, but I've enjoyed it a lot so far. Um, I, I don't even think I've gotten to the chapter on doubles, but um, he talks a lot about you know, technique and things that apply to doubles. Um, so I, I think that one's a, a really good one. Um, and then there's one called uh, uh, Mine, which is um, a coach in Canada who I had, I had on my podcast a few months ago named Euros Budimac. Um, and it's kind of an illustrated guide 
Um, it's not really like you can read it in 20 minutes maybe, but it's got like 20 or 25 different kind of concepts or plays that you can run in doubles. Um, and it's a good kind of entry level um, double strategy book as well. So um, those first two are definitely a lot more like in depth and cover a lot more than just doubles. Uh, but the last one is a pretty good intro to double strategy. And I think at some point in the next three-ish years or so, I'm going to have to write my own double strategy book because there's just not very many of them yeah. out there. Um, I've, I've already started writing a few eBooks and things like that, but I've, I've got to get on a longer form book. It's just going to take some time. Yeah, you got to fill out your calendar with those uh, writing appointments and just stick to it. But uh, yeah, that'd be yeah. great uh, to read. Yeah. Definitely would uh, have you back on again to talk about that. Um, so how about, um, you know, for all those singles players out there, like me included, I mean, I, uh, you know, I played like 99% of my juniors as singles and didn't really know how to play. Like I, I played D1 college, but I rarely ever played doubles. Cause I mean, I remember like my first few practices in doubles and I was just like kind of doing what you talked to, like trying to take care of my side of the court and, yeah. and just wondering like, wow, the ball's going so fast. How am I supposed <laughs> to? volley this ball or like poach like there's no way but um gradually kind of learned about it and got much better obviously and uh, playing usta and and interviewing people and whatnot so i'm curious about like for singles players especially what tips do you have for them to be able to to succeed when they're forced to play doubles or they want to play doubles you know in like usta leagues and and other you know uh formats yeah yeah um so singles players, if you're comfortable with your volleys, you can typically play um, fairly traditional doubles. Uh, if you're much more comfortable with the baseline or if you have some huge forehand weapon, uh, in that case, then you know two back on the return can be effective. Uh, a lot of the, the pros do that, especially against first serves. Um, that can be really effective. Uh, but... Um, in general, I mean, I think singles players, the thing they have trouble with on the doubles court is not knowing where to be and how to move. Um, and then sometimes like where to hit the ball. Uh, so you'll see the typical one, and, and a lot of doubles players do this too at the lower levels, is they'll stand just too close to the alley when their partner's serving, right? Um, a lot of singles players will do that uh, and just give them the wide yeah. open cross court return. Um, they don't know when to poach or, or what balls to kind of look for to cover in the middle. Um, they might not know where to hit their ground stroke in certain situations or how to approach the net the right way, uh, things like that. But um, the uh, the big things are don't cover the doubles alley too much. Um, you do want to make a higher percentage of first serves in doubles. Uh, that's one thing we haven't talked about. So in singles. I think ideal is around like 61% or something and doubles. It's like 67%. Um, and the reason for that is you just have a partner up there at the net. So there's a lot more pressure on the returner. Um, so high, high percentage of first serves is crucial. Uh, movement at the net is crucial. Um, and then in general, don't try to win the point from the baseline. Instead, try to set up your partner at the net. Um, that's another big yeah. one. So like, don't go down the line too often uh, when you're at the baseline. Um, 
really you want to be sticking with the the cross court shots, applying pressure on the opponent, um, and kind of set up your partner at the net or force errors from the back. But going from winners from the back is definitely a mistake, especially a lot of the younger players straight out of college. Um, they they do that a little bit too much, and and it can cost them on the doubles court. Yeah, a lot of great tips again. We'll uh, appreciate that. Um, just curious about your overall thoughts about doubles. I know you talked about how the uh, the WTA uh, finals uh, for dubs wasn't really promoted as well. But um, any um, any like wishes for um, uh, reformations or is that the right word for yeah. you know changes in in the doubles tours? Um, yeah, yeah. A- any any thoughts about how they can improve it? Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as the product goes, um, the only real difference I would like to see is, like I said earlier, just playing out the the ad games. Um, and I get why they have to do yeah. it to shorten the format for TV and stuff, but um, that that's the only real difference in the product that I would like to see. Uh, the, there just needs to be more marketing around it, though. Um, it's it's crazy. Like at Indian Wells this year. Um, we launched these and we're trying to tennis tribes trying to help promote this so i've got the shirt on now this watch more doubles shirt um nice. so we launched these at, at indian wells with uh, gabby dabrowski and i think like 14 cool. other wta doubles players and i was sitting there chatting with gabby in that like center um kind of garden area you know with, with all the food and drinks and stuff like that and everybody's just hanging out and we chatted yeah. for like 20 minutes and she at the time was like number seven in the world in doubles. Now, she, now I think she's top five. Um, and like one person comes up to her in 15 minutes and asks for a picture. Um, and if you like mm-hmm. took the number seven singles player in the world, I don't know who it was at the time, but like, you know, Rublev or whoever, um, like they would just be swarmed with people. Um, and then a few days later, Bruno Suarez was up. Uh, he had lost earlier in the day, and he was with um, with some friends uh, who were like having some beers and stuff. And he was just sitting there hanging out, and not a single person recognized him. And he has as many major titles as Andy Murray and Stan Wawrinka, like, and nobody knows yeah. who he is, you know. So um, there can definitely be more promotion from both tours um you see all these like graphics on social media and stuff with the singles players and they just rarely do it for doubles uh tennis channel um i was talking to ellen perez a few weeks ago and she was in the finals of cincinnati with her partner nicole melicar martinez and they're playing the finals of the the doubles draw at a masters 1000 on a sunday and tennis channel was showing pickleball so yeah yeah so like (laughs) If and it's a chicken or the egg problem, like there needs to be more demand for doubles. And if more people watched it on Tennis Channel Plus or ESPN Plus or whatever, then the networks would pick up on it and they would start to show it more. But it's also like there's no demand because y'all don't market it and y'all don't show it. Um, and I really think the product is plenty good for people to um, to get into it, to follow the teams, to get to know the players. Um, and to really become doubles fans rather than uh, exclusively singles. Yeah, it's uh, so entertaining to watch. I think a lot of mm-hmm. people who uh, just like don't really think about it and, and they tune in, they're like, wow, these these points are so action-packed and you know much more than 
singles a lot of the times and, and yeah. points and uh you know for however much you probably you know either like or dislike curious it was uh you know i think he's helping a little bit maybe with that he definitely and, is yeah, yeah. And, and yeah it, yeah it was cool to see him and kokonakis actually playing uh you know the the double um atp doubles finals and yeah uh, they had a close one i think yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's great yeah. like having the top single stars play it's it, it helps doubles a ton because a lot of people um like i was in new york for their match uh it was like the night session on um louis armstrong i believe and uh venus and serena were playing their doubles match on ash that same night um <laughs> and it was such a a great night for doubles um and yeah, I think it's great when the top single stars play because people, you know, it gets more awareness to people who are only singles fans or who never considered watching doubles. Um, and maybe they will, maybe just a few of them at a time, but maybe they will start to watch doubles a little bit more um, as a result of, of some of those matches. Yeah, definitely will. Um, do you have like a favorite doubles player of all time? And if so, why? Uh. <laughs> You know, I, um, I'm not a very big like tennis history buff. Uh, this is something I'm still like trying to get better at. Most of my childhood, like I didn't watch as much pro tennis as as most people in the industry. Um, so it's it's tough for me to say a favorite of all time. Uh, I, I can say some of my favorite players to watch now. Um, Katerina Siniakova is the number one women's doubles player in the world, and she is a blast to watch play doubles. Um, she's so active at the net, um, moves really well. Her backhand's unbelievable. Um, she just plays doubles the right way. Like every single shot, when I watch her play, I'm like analyzing what should she have done there. And 99% of the time, I'm like, yes, I totally agree with the way she played that point. Um, and that's definitely not true of a lot of, uh, a lot of the pros. Um, and then also on the women's side, uh, Demi Schurz, who I mentioned earlier is a lot of fun to watch. Um, she takes the return super early and takes away time from the serving team, um, which is a great tactic if you can do it. And then she returns in volley. So she comes in behind it. Um, so she's fun to watch, uh, do that. Gabby Dabrowski is a great doubles player, um, to watch as well. Uh, and then on the men's side, and there's a lot of good players. I mean, Salisbury's so athletic. Um, I, I like watching Skubski return from the ad court because he um, he has a two-handed backhand like I do. And he, uh, I don't know, I feel like his technique and his placement on his returns and he, how he's able to just generate so much pace on them. Um, I like watching him play a lot. Uh, Jamie Murray's fun to watch play because he he virtually doesn't have a forehand, um, but he still is is one of the best doubles players in the world. Um, so he's a lot of fun to watch yeah. as well. So um, yeah, I don't really have anybody historically, but um, yeah, those are some good current players that uh, I like watching a lot. Cool, I like it. Good selections. It's just curious um, being a doubles connoisseur and all. Um, so I guess, uh, yeah, just curious, um, you know, what's next for you? Any um, things coming down the pike or any plans uh, in particular that you want to share with the audience? Um, yeah, so I've, there's like three sides to Tennis Tribe that I'm always kind of juggling and spending more time on one and then another and then another. 
Um, so we, we do, we do gear reviews, which, um, uh, you know, review rackets, shoes, things like that. Um, so I spend some time on that and have a team that, that helps me with that as well. Um, and then the past couple of years, I've started getting more into the analytics and pro strategy. Um, and I've been working with a few pro coaches and players. And that is, um, that's something I want to continue to do more of in 2023. Um, because I, I just really enjoy working with the top players in doubles um, and kind of analyzing their games. And from that, I'm able to learn a ton that still applies uh, to the club level. Um, so through that, I can, um, on the podcast, you know, I do interview pro players and pro coaches, but I also have episodes where it's just me talking about strategy that I've learned from watching them or from my own matches. Um, and a, a lot of the feedback I get is that um, a lot of the listeners like those a lot better than the interviews, um, which mm -hmm. is uh, great to hear. But um, I like the interviews myself because I like chatting with the pro players. So um, those yeah. are going to continue anyways. Uh, so then, um, yeah, so there's that. And then uh, strategy at the club level. So um, like I said, I'm still doing the newsletter, uh, the podcast. I've got a few ebooks um, on the website. I want to revamp my existing courses and do some uh, new double strategy courses um, and, and maybe a book in the next couple of years. So uh, we will um, we will see. Uh, and then the third piece is we're trying to cover, cover the uh, doubles tour as much as we can. Um, we really, I just feel like doubles is an underserved market and I think it should be more popular than it is. And I want to help uh, kind of instigate that and, and be a part of, of seeing that grow. Awesome, man. Yeah. I really appreciate all the hard work you're doing and um, yeah, very cool to hear about all the projects you got coming down the pipe, uh, pipeline. So um, yeah. Where should our listeners go to check out uh, what you're doing? Yeah. The website's the easiest place um, to check everything out. So the tennis tribe.com. Um, if you sign up for the newsletter, you get a free, uh, doubles guide on some of the tactics we've talked about here today. Um, and I send that out every Thursday. Um, so that's the best way to kind of stay up to date with podcast episodes and everything like that. Uh, but from the website, you can find the podcast in the main menu. Um, you can, uh, read some of the doubles lessons. Uh, there's links to some of the YouTube lessons, um, things like that. So that's, definitely the best place to uh to kind of find everything great and any uh social platforms or accounts you want to shout out yeah um we are on twitter instagram have a facebook page um i'm trying to get better at that honestly i'm not very good at social media partly because i i just don't enjoy it that much um but it's it's <laughs> something that i know is super important and i'm trying to get uh more consistent with it um I think my personal account, Twitter account, is going to be one to follow over the next year because I'm going to try to start um, putting out more data, uh, more pro-level doubles data uh, through my personal cool. Twitter account um, and kind of build it up that way. So um, anyways, all that's linked from the website, though, so you can find all of that there as well. Excellent, excellent. Well, and uh, just to close, a um, you know, question I ask all my guess which is which uh and i'll adapt it to double yeah. strategy so what is one key tip that you can give to help uh, our audience improve their doubles games 
I would say practice like you play. Um, it's one of the biggest lessons I've learned the past several years from you know O'Shaughnessy and Warren Pretorius, um, who have been two of the biggest influences for me. Um, just making the the practice court reflect the match court. Um, and the volley drill I talked about earlier is just a huge one. Like if you go do that for, you know, over the course of a month, do it once or twice a week, I promise you your volleys are going to get better. Um, if you find yourself hitting a lot of forehands from the deuce court in your doubles matches, because you return from the deuce side and you rally from there, practice that. Practice your forehands from the deuce court, hitting short angles, hitting with depth, hitting down the line, lobbing from the deuce court, um, whatever real match situations you find yourself in a lot, go practice those things and and give yourself the tools to uh, be able to kind of manipulate the ball and, and send it back to the opponent's weakness, um, regardless of, of where that may be. Awesome. Well, great advice. And uh, yeah, I appreciate having you on. Um, thanks for coming on the show and definitely encourage everybody to check out uh, the tennis tribe.com as well as your podcast, the doubles only tennis podcast. So, well, uh, yeah, great chatting with you. Hope to connect again soon and, uh, all the best with everything going on over there. Awesome. Thanks a ton, Mirabon. It was uh, a lot of fun. Thanks. Same here. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Will Bocek and I definitely highly encourage you to check out tennis tribe and the doubles only tennis podcast links to them in the show notes page. I also would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast, and you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or at the podcast app that you use to listen to the show. I just find that Apple Podcasts is the best in terms of helping the show due to uh, the majority of views being on the Apple Podcast platform, so that would help the most, but any sort of feedback overall that you can give would be much appreciated. I also just want to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show. And this one is by Walter Anderson. And Walter said, it is only when we take chances when our lives improve, the initial and the most difficult risk that we need to take is to become honest. Really like that one there. Uh, a lot of great interviews coming down the pike for you that I've actually already recorded. So I... Very happy to bring those to you very soon in a week's time if you listen to this episode on the day that it's released. And otherwise, you can probably listen to the next episode right now. So all the best. Keep improving your tennis game. And I'll catch you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is your host, Mirabhan Aranshad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.